Hey everybody, it's Jason. Just a quick note before the show proper gets underway. Uh, First of all, I'm sorry it's late, and members, I'm sorry you didn't get it early. My partner and I moved from State College, Pennsylvania to Tucson, Arizona over the weekend. We moved into our new place on Monday. We still don't even have internet yet, so I'm uploading this via my phone and actually recording this intro via my phone. But, you know, it'll it'll all get done. Uh, in any case, though, that's why the show is later than it would normally be, and I thank you for your patience. Also, huge thanks to uh, Lynn Ariel, who's the guest on this episode, and to Carol White, both of whom became members since I last spoke to you. So, thanks so much. If you want to help make this show even stronger, you can become a member, too, at thejazzsession.com slash join. And now... On with the show. You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 512 for March 4th, 2020. On today's show, pianist Lynn Ariel. The Jazz Session turned 13 last week. My dream is to make 2020 the year that the show becomes financially sustainable and also my main occupation. Will you help me? You can do so by becoming a member today for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com join. Thanks. Lynn Ariel's new album is called Chimes of Freedom. Welcome back to the Jazz Session. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. We're here to talk about your uh, latest recording, which, uh, as people are listening to this, comes out in a couple days, if today is on or about March 4th of 2020. Uh, It's called Chimes of Freedom, and like a surprising number of the records, maybe it's not surprising, but like a number of records that we've talked about on season 12 of this show, it is about more than just a collection of tunes. It's about uh, both music for its own sake, but also music as a way to speak about the circumstances in which we all find ourselves. And so maybe I'll start right there, if that's okay, and just ask you about the, the inspiration for this record and the and the pieces that are on it. Well, this album is a response to what's going on right now and has been going on for the last few years. And one sense, it's a celebration of the ideals of America or the America that I love, uh, or the best of America, which is inclusive, welcomes people from different backgrounds, different nations that that are in need of uh, sanctuary, sometimes fleeing for their lives or their children's well-being. And when I grew up, that was that was the American ideal, and I hope it will be in the future. So many of these tunes have that as kind of the backdrop. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child is one uh, journey you know, my own just thinking about what this must mean to to a family that says, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna walk. We're gonna walk until we get to America. Um in fact one of the tunes is called Three Million Steps. I looked up how many steps it was from Guatemala to the border of Texas. 
And it's just staggering to think of of that journey and how dangerous it is. Some people don't make it and so forth. And there's a song called Lady Liberty, a song called The Whole Truth, uh, which is very pertinent today as truth is uh, very different than what I remember <laughs> when I was growing up. Yeah, the whole um, truth seems like, almost like an impossible dream. Uh, any of any yeah. of the truth at all seems like it would be lovely much of the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's shocking, you know. And there's a new reality that seems to be present that um, I know many of us don't recognize, um, but it, it's here with us and. Um, you know, so this is really comes from my love of this country and from my love of the principles of, of democracy throughout the world that are inclusive and that involve, you know, um, caring for people and uh, the ideals of equality. Certainly we fall short many, many times historically, but in the ideals are still noble. As you mentioned, the very first uh, track on the album is Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, which is uh, kind of dark and beautiful. And you make the explicit connection that this is being recorded in a country now where we're separating children from their parents and, you know, keeping kids in cages. And it's not like it's not the first time we've done or like it is the first time we've done that. I mean, as a matter of fact, we were recording this interview on the anniversary of the day that Japanese uh, Americans were sent to internment camps in 1944. So mm -hmm. um, certainly we have a history of doing things like that, but it does seem like, you know, being able to speak to it in this way. I mean, that song just takes on a, a whole other level if you imagine the modern context. Well, the level of cruelty that's involved in, in this particular thing is, is, is so staggering. Children will never recover from this experience, and they may never find their parents again. It was so poorly organized that they, no one ever thought, well, maybe we might need to reunite them at some point. And it's even it's, it's out of the news cycle. We're not even hearing about this. Yeah, it's terrifying. I wanted to ask, I, I absolutely do not and have never subscribed uh, to the idea that artists should not be political. I think art is inherently political. But in the instrumental music world, it can often be a little challenging to figure out how to make a statement. Uh, this album does have some uh, some lyrics at the end, but you know, for most of it, it's instrumental music. And so you essentially have the titles, and you have whatever you say on stage. And so it can... I think be a little difficult to figure out, well, you know, how do I use my music as a statement if there aren't going to be any words? So I just wanted to ask mm -hmm. you about navigating that. How do you, how do you make the music express what you're feeling if there are, no one's going to say any lyrics to the majority of it? 
Well, the titles and the writing, you know, hopefully, are, you know, bring forth a feeling that I'm trying to convey. A tune-like journey has a particular kind of energy to it. It's kind of high energy, uh, three million steps. I can imagine people walking. It seems like it's it's continuous and just just constant, you know, constantly moving. Um, those are general reference, references. When I'm performing these tunes live, I speak a little bit about the stories behind each of the tunes and what inspired me to write them. But in sequence, there's a little bit of a narrative that happens. And people know what's going on and they make the connection. It doesn't have to be exactly literal. It can be just the feel of, you know, of what the sentiment is. Lady Liberty, for example. How could I capture the feeling that I have when I look at that beautiful statue and symbol of, um, you know, give us your tired, your poor. And so I tried to capture that in, in that melody. quick break to remind you that the Jazz Session really is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It started 13 years ago last week, back when the earth was still cooling and very few people knew what a podcast was. Most folks thought you needed an iPod to listen to one. The show is still going strong, but I'd like to be able to do even more. More in-person interviews, more festival coverage, more travel. And that's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus shows, early access, and more. Thanks for being here all these years. Please become part of the next 13 years by becoming a member. Now back to the show. I want to make sure that we highlight uh, the other people who are on this album. And I, before we get to the vocalist who we'll talk about um, toward the end, I want to talk about the other members of your trio. This is a, while we certainly can and should talk about the message, there's also just an, an incredible amount of really, really fabulous music on here. And the, I know this sometimes used almost as a pejorative, but the first word that came to my mind was lush when I heard this album. And I, mm. lush can, I think sometimes be used to imply that there's not, not depth or that there's no bite to the music. And that's absolutely not what I mean. I kind of mean something that fills up the sound field as you're listening and makes you feel like you're just surrounded by the trio in this really fabulous way. So I wanted to just uh, mention who the other folks are who are making that beautiful sound, if you would. Yes, thank you. Jasper Thompson is the bassist and my co-producer. He's an outstanding um, uh, musician from the Netherlands. And he plays all over Europe and, and hopefully he'll be playing more in this country um, and we met a couple of years ago and did uh, a record prior to this called Give Us These Days. And we have a great connection. He's got great ears and great instincts. 
EJ Strickland. I've been a fan of his music for years, and I just felt thrilled uh, to have him be a part of this recording. We've, we've toured as a trio a fair amount in Europe. They both brought so much to this project. They have a wealth of experience, and most importantly, they, they have really a deep concept and deep hearts. They, I always say when, when we're doing live performances, I, you know, I tell people that every note you hear and the, you know, the tremendous passion and, and warmth that is in this music, these men are like that in life all the time. They're very aware individuals. They're very caring individuals. And I feel very lucky to be working with them. I'll just mention that E.J. Strickland has been on this program, and you can find an interview with him in the archives, and Lynn's been on before, too, and you can find a previous interview with her. How did you and E.J. first come to play together? I think we met in New York a few years ago, and we got together and played, and I just thought, I want to try to make this happen as much as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Very Uh, simply. Yeah, this is a question I, I do ask from time to time on this show, but what is it that lets you know that a trio is working how you know what is it what does it feel like how can you tell like oh okay this is a group that i need to keep together it feels like a musical conversation is happening without needing to ask for a musical conversation because everyone is listening and responding and there's just a lot of different dynamics going on at once and almost a feeling as if the group is breathing together and when you have that feeling that's you know that's it when i was listening to this album for the first time and it got to uh chimes of freedom and then american tune i was i didn't know that was coming and that uh because i hadn't looked at anything you know in the liner notes or anything and so when uh the person who sings on this album started singing i was completely surprised and then when american tune started which i think is one of the greatest songs ever written in any genre by anyone uh her performance is is just stunning will you talk about who's singing on this record it's kj dennard and she's a beautiful vocalist and i um had the opportunity to work with her a few years ago in a band with with her and uh, grace kelly and we did some touring in Europe, and she was really great to be around and really a great singer and very, very funny, actually. She, I, I had no idea how hilarious she was until we went on the road together. But I called her and asked if she would you know, want to be a part of this project, and she wanted to do it. And we got together a couple times and started working on the material and trying different things. And I thought she really brought the, just the right spirit. I knew when I put this project together that I wanted KJ to sing on it if she was interested, and I'm happy that she was, and it worked out great. Many's the time I've been mistaken And many times confused Yes, and I've often felt forsaken And suddenly misused But I'm alright I'm alright I'm just weary
Still, you don't expect to be bright and bon vivant So far away from home So far away from home There's a quality to her voice that sounds kind of modern and old at the same time. Like, and by old, I, I mean, like, drawing on a deep well of yeah. musical history. It doesn't sound dated. It just sounds informed. And uh, I thought that was particularly true. And again, I'm bringing my own bias to the table because... I, I, I just love American tunes so much and always have. But uh, her performance of that song, I just found really arresting. And it just she just invests it with so much. It, it already has an incredible melody and uh, beautiful lyric, both by Paul Simon and then a wonderful arrangement by you. But then KJ just she just adds a whole other set of stories to this song uh, beyond even what's in the lyrics that I, I just thought was really, really gorgeous. Oh, that's that's really nice to hear. It, there's such depth, and I, there's just an earth quality when I hear her sing. She's the real deal. <laughs> it's very honest, very honest uh, singing, and that's what I was looking for. You mentioned that in addition to playing uh, bass, that uh, Jasper also co-produced this, and I know he co-produced the previous record too. What what does that role look like? Uh, how does him being a co-producer help you when you're actually in the studio making the recording? It helps tremendously. Uh, it means attending to all the details, um, you know, being a second set of ears for everything, working together very closely on, you know, everything that's going on in terms of um, pre-production, uh, sorting everything out. There are a lot of details regarding the studio and, the, you know, all the logistics. Um, and that was immensely helpful. I wanted to really be able to focus on the music, and it took me a long time to write this project. I was very busy for a long time, um, and so that was helpful knowing that he was over there in the Netherlands doing de- dealing with a lot of the logistics. I mean, we were, we were in touch on the phone a lot and via email, of course. In the studio, his help was invaluable, and the same with the mixing and our recording engineer at Motor Music was Florin von Stichel. And he also had, you know, amazing hearing and um, to every nuance that was going on. And I really need that help and that support. And I, I really found it with this, um, this group with Jasper, Florin and EJ in the studio. We really worked well together as a team and everybody contributed so much to the, to the, uh, the outcome. You mentioned getting a chance to uh, play live with both, uh, well, there's three other musicians, but um, particularly with Jasper and EJ. When did you get a chance to tour this particular repertoire before you recorded it? Had you played it live with them before you went into the studio? No, we had not played it. We, we had rehearsed the day before, and then as soon as we recorded it, we went out on tour and then we played it. In a perfect world, I would be able to tour music before recording it but it never seems to work out that way i'm not sure why yeah and this has also been a bit of a theme here in season 12 of pointing to the realities of what it's like to record an album as a jazz musician 
and how much it contrasts with almost any other genre of music, certainly, you know, the, the genres that have the most money poured into them, where, you know, you, you meet up with the people the day before, get one day of rehearsal, and the next day make the whole record. And it's amazing to me, given how frequently that is the story that gets told, how many of these records end up sounding like music that people... Uh, find complete comfort in as they play. I mean, because this record, as I mentioned, this record just is is beautiful. It's full. There's a ton of interaction, and of course, you you know, you folks had played before, but to do that on material that is, you know, for the most part, brand new, and that you rehearsed the day before, I, well, I guess it must speak more than anything else to the fact that you all can listen to each other, because that that seems to be what's absolutely. Re- required if you're going to make recordings work with that kind of schedule well Jasper and EJ are such stellar musicians that they made it easier and you're 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 right it, it is incredibly challenging uh but again if you've got uh outstanding musicians around you it it, it it's 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 the world If I'm wrong here, but I feel like you're you are in, and maybe this is a, a, just a lifelong thing, and I'm only noticing it. But I feel like you're in a bit of a period of exploration of yourself and how you think about the world. I mean, the the record before this, "Give Us These Days," talked a lot about you know how the finite amount of time we each are given, which is something that really speaks to me, and as a Buddhist, is something I think about a lot. But just as a human being, I also think about it a lot, and. I, I feel like you're in a place these days where your your internal dialogue about what your life is like and what the world you find yourself in is like and the music that you're recording and presenting to people seem to be really coming into harmony with each other. I, again, feel free to correct me there. Well, I appreciate your saying that and and um I think that's accurate. I I I reflect more and more as I get older and every day I'm surprised by life and what goes on and in terms of the last album, I, I, I'm acutely aware of our limited time here and how precious every moment is and that at any time our lives can take a turn that we never would have expected. And that's the challenge for many people. That's the joy of life. For many people, it's a little unnerving. You know, we all have our different responses to that. But I do. I have become more reflective and kind of just looking at the big picture for me. Like, what is this all about? What is it for? Why am I doing this? So that's part of my journey. Have you arrived at any conclusions about 
what your particular life is for or what life in general is for or what keeps you doing it? I don't have any conclusions because conclusions to me are are kind of like solid thoughts. Yeah. And as a Buddhist, I know that that's a familiar term. But I know that I think the most important thing to me is to somehow not create harm around me, not create messes, work constantly on being aware of how I interact with my fellow human being on planet Earth and and hopefully out of kindness and, and out of an understanding that we never know what anybody is going through. And we, you know, we want to come from a place of compassion at all times. And I think the hardest kind of compassion is compassion towards ourselves, because as artists, it's very easy to be highly self-critical and in whatever level, whether it's a business of music or whether it's just, you know, playing, but in the big picture, you know, what does this all look like, you know, from a hundred miles up looking down on, on the earth and then kind of everything looks different. And I think in my consciousness, there's a little bit of feeling like, you know, I'm here and I'm not here. <laughs> in other words, I wonder about, you know, alternate realities and I don't dwell on it and it's not a gimmicky kind of thing, but there's, there's a feeling of this is real, but it's also not real. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I've noticed to kind of keep going with that idea. I've noticed in my own art, which is, which is poetry, not music, but that the more I think about things like having a finite amount of time, the less I find myself intensely focused on the perfection of any one particular thing that I produce, which is not to say I don't, I don't care about the outcome or whether the poems are any good or that I don't think about the language. It's just that I'm a little more conscious of each particular thing not having to be the only thing I ever make, but also being a kind of smaller part of a larger canvas. So I guess maybe I'll just turn that around to you. Has thinking about the world in this this kind of larger way, does it change at all your approach to recording or what you feel that albums need to to do for you or to represent for you? I'd like to treat each album as if, you know, if this were my last album, what would I want to say to people? Because we never know. Are there 30 more coming? Are there 50 more coming? Is there one more coming? We don't know. So that's part of it. But more, more importantly than that, it's really what is the feeling that people get? I would like I would like people to feel a sense of connection when we play for them, a little bit of a journey, a musical journey. On a purely craft level, we want to have the flow of the tunes go one to another where somehow people will hopefully be engaged in the story, whatever that is, in the musical story. I'm constantly working, you know, getting better at, you know, relaxing in, in the studio. It's not easy. You know, I think some people are really naturally gifted. They sit down, they play, and it sounds great. So I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lifelong, yeah. it's a lifelong pursuit for me. We're all a work I, in progress. We all are, and I think there's something about knowing that there's a microphone listening to us. I was talking to my students about this recently. I said, you know, I think I discovered something. When I don't have a tape recorder on, like if I'm writing a new song, and I just am kind of playing or singing, you know, at the piano and I play something, and I think, oh my God, I like that. If the tape recorder was on, I probably might not have found that. It's almost like there's a part of our creativity that's extremely shy, 
and doesn't like to come out unless it's totally safe and comfortable. So I thought, I have an idea. I'm going to sit and play the piano. And if I stumble on something I like, I'm going to turn on the tape recorder then and then play it and then turn it back off again so that there's not this constant thing of, well, the tape recorder's on. So I know we can't do that in the recording studio, but um, (laughs) I wish, you know, there's an inherent self-consciousness. I think it was Bill Evans who said that it was a little bit of a different quote where he said he felt like he played his best music when he was alone or, or, you know, as opposed to being in front of an audience, which is mind bending because he's so brilliant in in every way. But, you know, the mind is, is the final frontier. That is for sure. Another quick break to thank the folks who make the Jazz Session possible, starting with the members who support it and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, Dave Rabel for the logo, and Chuck Ingersoll, who's the voice of the intro. You can hire Chuck at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. Right now I'm posting a photo every weekday from more than 20 years of jazz shows and interviews. Take a second right now to rate and review the Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It improves my ability to reach new listeners. And if you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the show. I wanted to uh, just shift away from the present just for a moment to talk about there have been so many like great metal band tour names and but none none can compare for bizarreness in name to a tour that you participated in if to my mind which was the 100 golden fingers tour which <laughs> i i get what it means i mean it sounds like it should be sponsored by kentucky fried chicken i get why it sounds like it does <laughs> and what it represented and that it was an amazing collection of musicians but every time i, th- I think of that name i just think either that it should be like the title of a 70s kung fu movie uh, or again sponsored by a chicken franchise but will you just tell people what the 100 golden fingers tour was because this is i mean talk about a collection of people all in one place. This was a real collection of, of luminaries at one time. It certainly was. Hank Jones, Cedar Walton, Tommy Flanagan, Kenny Barron, Harold Mayburn, Monty Alexander, Junior Mance, Roger Kellaway, and Ray Bryant with Bob Cranshaw and Alan Dawson as the rhythm section. And it, it was a, a, an amazing tour. It was, it was the first tour I was on. And some of the guys were joking that you know, this is my first tour and it was five stair hotels and everything. And they, you know, they were joking, like, it's, you know, it's not always like this. (laughs) And which I, of course, figured, but to play every night, to play on the same piano that Hank Jones played on or that that Tommy Flanagan played on 
was such an experience because I could hear them play maybe the same tune each night on a different piano and hear what they did with the tune and then hear the next person come up and play and hear the difference in sound and touch. Now, there were three pianos on stage so that at one point there were there were three piano trios and and duos as well. I think I did a duo with Kenny Barron and, and I may have done a duo with Harold Mayburn and some others as well. And then we, we all did a, a trio selection with um, bass, bass and drums and so forth. But people talk about the sound that a pianist gets out of the instrument. And it's not just the physical sound, like the hammer striking the keys, but it's just their, you know, their touch. And to hear, you know, back to back, each pianist on, on the same instrument was really remarkable because everybody sounded really different and created a different sound and entirely different energy and almost a different language in a certain way. It's like it was a different person speaking through that instrument. Which is so incredible to me because the piano is a, like like most instruments, it's a very mechanical instrument in the way that it functions. And you're exactly right to say that you can listen to five different people play the exact same piano and it sounds like five different pianos. And that to me has just always been incredible that just the really fairly minor amount of physical contact that a human being has with the piano can make it do such different things, can make the same instrument do such different things. It's it's almost like magic to me. I know it's science, but it seems like magic to me. I think it's magical, really. I agree. You know, how much the pedal is being used on a particular note or a couple notes changes everything. How much we're leaning into the sound or, or you know, or, or striking the key. I don't like to use the word strike because it's really not striking per se, but and whether the sound has is, is detached or legato, and the list goes on. There are so many different things that create this myriad of nuances. You spend a lot of time uh, on the road and and have for a very long time, and I, I wonder, does it? how has that changed for you? How has the idea of touring and you know playing for different audiences each night changed for you over the course of your career? Every time there are people in the audience, I'm always grateful because anything can happen. People could decide to stay home that night, you know? And so I feel like I have a great responsibility to reach people, to talk with them, to connect with them, to welcome them to our world that we're creating with the music. And every experience is a new one. And I think that audiences bring out different energies and are playing just like different musicians bring out different energies um, in what we do. Well, speaking of live playing, uh, again, I'll just mention that if folks are listening to this on or about its release date, today is somewhere near March 4th of the year 2020. Are there chances for folks to see you coming up? Yes. We'll be playing um, at Snug Harbor in New Orleans on March 14th, in Madison, Wisconsin at Cafe Coda on March 21st, in Milwaukee at Blue Jazz Club on the 22nd of March. Uh, April 29th in Chicago at the Jazz Showcase, May 1st at the Dunsmore Room in Minneapolis, May 4th at Birdland Theater in uh, New York City, and May 8th at the Side Door in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and then a bunch of European dates starting in October in next year, in the following year. That's fabulous. And where can folks go for all the details on specifically when and where each of those performances is? 
Well, they can follow me on social media and also lynnariel.com, and that's L-Y-N-N-E-A-R-R-I-A-L-E.com. This is your second album on Challenge Records, your 15th overall as a leader. Uh, tell me about uh, recording on Challenge. Challenge is a great label. They are so supportive of artists. Um, I feel very lucky to be with them. They're really um, wonderful people and a pleasure to work with. Um, their whole staff is great. Um, and uh, I hope we'll do a lot more on Challenge. We used to be in an era where singles would come out before the record, and then that era went away, and now it has come back again with the advent of digitally released singles, and this album uh, is no different. It has a single out as well. Tell folks about that. Uh, We just released uh, American Tune that KJ is singing on, and that was just released a little while ago, and it's available digitally on Spotify and Apple Music and all the other different platforms. And it's very cool. It's my first single. <laughs> That's a, It's your first single on your 15th record? My first single, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I once, uh, this is apropos of nothing except that little tiny bit of conversation, but um, once many years ago when I was working at a jazz station in Rochester, New York, uh, and hosting the afternoon show, the drive show, I did a whole week of tunes that had been jukebox hits uh, in, oh, kind of nice. in the classic jazz era, which had some very, very strange inclusion in there. And the one that always jumps to my mind is a two-minute, 30-second edit of John Coltrane's My Favorite Things that was edited down from the, whatever it is, 14 and a half minutes or something on the record, 13 and a half minutes. And there was a two-and-a-half-minute edit that they released as a, you know, back when they were 45s in a jukebox. And it f- did incredibly well. And apparently you could hear it everywhere where... <laughs> jukebox music was played and i always just love thinking that i wish there were jukeboxes nowadays that had music like this too because it would be just so rad to walk into a you know a bar some night and just hear your version of american tune playing or you know anything from anybody who's making contemporary improvised music nowadays i think it would be great but i always love the idea that there was a time when you could walk into a bar and order a beer and john coltrane's my favorite things would be playing behind the bar which always sounded pretty cool to me so oh that's remarkable I wish I could have experienced that. Me too. And him, period, as a matter of fact. Of course. Of course. Finally, you alluded to this earlier in the interview when you mentioned your students, uh, that you are also an educator. Will you uh, tell us about that, where you're doing that, and, and what it's like? For the past 12 years, I've been a professor at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. I came here not knowing 
how I would like being in academia and trying to balance that with a career of performing and and traveling. And it's, it's really great. I find it incredibly stimulating to teach and to work with young minds. They are so receptive. And I learned so much as a teacher and, and for, that, that I apply to my own practice in writing just by watching how other people approach music. And it also makes me really stretched to learn how to explain things many, many different ways. And the students are really wonderful to work with. They're, they're beautiful souls and they, they just want to learn and grow. And I really couldn't ask for anything more. It's, it's, there's great weather down here. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it's a beautiful, beautiful department, beautiful school of music. My guest uh, on this episode has been pianist Lynn Ariel. Her new album on Challenge Records is called Chimes of Freedom. It is really, really wonderful. Um, she's using her powers for good and using her music to speak some truth, <laughs> which we always, always need. And we need, more, I would say now more than ever, but we really always needed it and we're going to continue to need it. Lynn, it's been such a pleasure to have you back on the show and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Lynn Ariel. Next week's show features somebody, I'm sure. I just don't know who it is yet. Until then, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.